So, like I said last night, we're talking about the, the gospel marks, the, the, the marks of a believer. And what we're talking about is the marks of our group. We want to be a group, not just that gathers together. We want to be a group that is shaped and molded and marked by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, and if you are not a believer, right, you are welcome in our group. We're glad to have you here, but we want you to know something. We're after you. We're after you with the love of Christ. We want to be a group that radiates the love of Christ because he has loved us so much. This morning we're talking about the inner realities of Christianity. We see here in verse 9 kind of the primary command, the basic principle on which all of these other commands and applications rest. And this is, this is Paul's M.O., isn't it? He always kind of starts off by kind of giving you theology and then practice. He gives you basics and then specifics. He gives you Romans 1 through 11, then he gives you Romans 12. This is what Paul does. And really, this command to love is the basic command that fuels all the commands. You could say loving is to show hospitality. You could say loving is to bless and not curse. You could say loving is overcoming evil with good. That, that, this is basic. This is, this is the internal reality. Or to pull back to our illustration from last night, this is how the gospel affects you deeply. The rock goes all the way down in the lake. It, it transforms your loves, your affections, your desires, your wants, and your want-nots, if you could say it that way. This is, this is real deal Christianity. The real deal Christian loves. This is the leading quality. As a matter of fact, keep your finger in Romans 12 and turn over to 1 Corinthians 13. Whenever you're at a wedding, you hear 1 Corinthians 13 recited. But it's really just talking about what it means to be a Christian. It's not talking about what it means to be married, necessarily. It's talking about the leading primary principle of the Christian is love. And now, remember, I kind of said this last night. I said, you can't do this on your own. You can't do any of these applications on your own. If you come away from this weekend thinking, oh, I just want to open my house more to other people, I just want to be nicer to my enemies, if you just think about it that way, you are missing the point completely. Uh, Christianity is transformed. And, and Christianity has this love principle inside of them. As a matter of fact, we see you could do all sorts of things, but it would be empty. It says in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 1, If I speak in the tongue of men and of angels, but have not love, I am nothing but a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. I am obnoxious. I am anno annoying, loud. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have all faith, all faith, if I had all faith, but if I don't have love, I am nothing. Look at verse 3. This looks like a Christian. If I give away all I have, if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. If you have not love, if, you've got, if you do not have that deep and abiding principle in your heart, all of your works are nothing. They are nothing. So turn back over to, to Romans chapter 12. We do see this. We do see this all... Um, I'll, uh, just, to, just to kind of show this a little bit more, somebody please look up for me 
1 Thessalonians 4.9. Matthew Castanera. Somebody else look up for me. 1 John 4.9. Stephen. Uh, 1 John 4.19, Stephen. Sorry about that. 1 John 4.19. Somebody else look up for me. 1 John 4.7. Somebody else look up for me. Romans 5.5. Ethan. Which one? Which one? You guys are sitting right next to each other. This makes it so confusing. Uh, Ethan Campbell. Uh, Romans 5.5. But Ethan Jones, you... Not track. Ethan Jones Jones. Um, you can look up Galatians 5.22 and one more. Uh, Lena, you look up Romans 8.10 through 11. Once again, these are the, the leading marks, the leading qualities of what it means to be a Christian. Um, who's got uh, 1 Thessalonians 4? All right, go ahead. All right, once again, we talked about this a little bit last night, right? When you are a Christian, you enter into this new reality of loving other people. You don't need necessarily someone to come and teach you about loving other people. You automatically start loving other people in the church. Why? Because they're your new family. They're your spiritual family. What does it say in 1 John 4.19? Yeah, so uh, once again, we do not define love based on how, how Hollywood defines love. We do not define love on based on how, how we even love. We define love based on how God loves. And that is what marks the Christian. God has loved me, therefore I'm going to love other people. But it's primarily rooted in who God is and what God has done. First John 4, 7. Right, once again, this is a sign that you have been born again. You know God. You love God. You love one another. You probably read a lot of verses that sound a lot like that this morning in your quiet time. Who says that sounds familiar? All right, good. All right, you all did your quiet time. All right, Romans 5.5. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. All right, write that down. Romans 5.5. Love, Christian love, this deep and abiding principle is not naturally in you. You define it by God and it comes from God. It comes through the Holy Spirit. Without the Holy Spirit, you can do nothing. Without the Holy Spirit, you are a noising gong and a clanging cymbal. You gain nothing. You need God to pour His love through His Holy Spirit into your life. For example, Galatians 5.22. Yeah, that's awkward. Just ending. Yeah, go ahead. Twenty-three, two. Okay. Well, I always like to point this out. Notice it doesn't say fruits of the spirit. It says fruit of the spirit. When you have the spirit in your life, it produces all of these qualities all at the same time in a way that they're they're all growing. You can't just be faithful. You can't just be loving. All of these things are happening at the same time. But notice the leading quality, the first mark, the thing you notice most about a Christian is love. That is a sign, a fruit of the spirit in your life. Romans, Romans 8, 10 through 11. Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through 
Once again, you could say this love is almost it's also new life in you, right? And you have this new life in you because right, uh, Christ's righteousness is on you. If you read back in Romans 8, 4, uh, it, it, talks about, it talks about in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. You have the Spirit because the righteous requirement of the law has been fulfilled in you. But notice, if you are a believer, you have new life in you. Life. That is what it means to love people, to finally not be dead anymore, to finally not be abiding in death anymore, but to be abiding in life. And what does that life look like? It looks like loving. I say all of this to just say, that's what it means to be a Christian. You start loving God and you start loving people. And as we're talking about in Romans 12, this love reaches all over the place. So, this morning, in our verse, our verse gives us um, four kinds, we'll, we'll say it, We'll describe this kind of love, this Christian love, in four ways. So, so you can write down any way you want uh, four descriptions of this kind of love, four ways to describe the Christian's love. Anyway, it's a love with deliberate attitudes. It's a love with demonstrable action. It's a love with distancing abhorrence. It's a love with delighting adherence. We'll walk through those again, but that, that's how we're going to describe the Christian kind of love. And it's very important that you don't just start saying, I'm going to define love the way the world tells me to define love. Define love the way God demonstrates love to you. That is what Christian love is. Number one, uh, love with deliberate attitudes. Love with deliberate attitudes. Do you ever meet someone who is you know, the real deal Christian. Ever meet someone like that? They're just overflowing with love for you and for everybody in their life. It's, you know, it's they, they are constantly asking you about you. you. You try. You go into the conversation trying to ask them about them, but it, you always walk away talking about you. That might be a reflection of you, too, but it's also a reflection of them. They are very concerned about you. They seem to remember all of your problems from the last time you talked to them. They seem to genuinely care, and you get the absolute uh, idea that they are praying for you. And they're not just saying that to be kind or to, to kind of show off their spirituality like some of us say, I'll be praying for you. They are genuinely praying for you. Okay, the must... The, those people are crazy, right? They must be just naturally that way, right? They're just naturally kind, naturally more loving. They're, they're just naturally more outgoing. They're naturally nicer. You know, they're extroverts. I'm an introvert. They're extroverts. That's why they're like that. No, no, not at all. They are that way because they have been deliberate. They have been deliberate in working hard to obey Christ's command to love others more than their selfish desires. They, they have deliberately done this. Yes, they've got this new work of the Spirit inside of them, but they've also been deliberate in how they have been seeking to love others more than themselves. They've been deliberate in their thinking, in their, their feeling. They've been deliberate in their actions. That's how you develop something like that inside of you. Now, I want to point out something to you here. In uh, 12.9, you see he uses a very interesting word for love. Um, 
in Greek, it's, it's agape. You don't need to know that, but you need to know the definition. It's a very important word in the Bible. It's a very strong word for love. It is used for God's intentional, self-sacrificing love for his people, for you, if you are a Christian. God sacrificially, intentionally, deliberately did things in love for you. That is the kind of love that we see in God. As a matter of fact, you probably know the verse, John 3, 16. Who can quote it for me? Yes? Um, Blanking. No, go ahead. All right. Okay, John 3, 16. Man, nobody knows the verse when you're on spot. Yes, right? We were all looking at eternal death, eternal judgment, but because God loved, everything changed for us. Right? That is God's kind of love. It's a very strong kind of love. It speaks of sacrificial, um, intentional, deliberate activity. Action that is sometimes separated from emotion and feeling. It does things for other people because it simply does the other person good. That is God's kind of love. Now, this, it helps us to understand this word by realizing that, well, there are many different words for love in the ancient Greek language. For example, there's phileo, from where we get the, the city name Philadelphia, city of brotherly love. It's the word that refers to brotherly affection. As a matter of fact, you'll see that in verse 10. Um, uh, what, what does it say? Love one another with brotherly affection. That's using phileo over there. There's also a less used word in the New Testament because of all of its connotations, but it's Eros, it refers to more of a lustful, out of control, I just have to do this kind of love, uh, but the New Testament doesn't use that. And it's very interesting as you study um, these words in the New Testament and outside of the New Testament especially, you find that uh, our word, love, agape, is rarely used in ancient Greek. And as you read more about it, you see it was considered a weakness in the ancient mind to love with agape kind of love, right? It meant, I'm going to be unselfish. That's a weakness. It meant, I'm going to be self-giving. That is a weakness. It meant, I'm going to willingly devote myself to someone else, even if it means I'm going to lack something. That is a weakness in the ancient mind. And, And the New Testament used this word. They're like, hey, this doesn't have all of this baggage tied around it. But also, this word really does express what God did for us as well. And that's why they chose that word. It gives something to someone unworthy of that gift. This kind of love doesn't expect anything in return. This kind of love doesn't seek its own interests, but seeks the interests of others. This kind of love can give and not regret. This kind of love can love even though it is not loved in return. This kind of love can act towards enemies as if they are friends. And this uh, brings us to a definition. I'll just throw out a, a definition of Christian love. Christian love means to think and act deliberately for the good of another, right? Christian love means to think and act deliberately for the good of another, And catch this, it is often without feeling or inclining emotions. Sometimes Christians love because they they feel a certain way. But most times, often, Christians love 
without feeling, without inclination. They love because it will do the other person good. That is the kind of love that we see in Christ and in God. You don't do something on the basis of feeling or merit that the other person has warranted or deserved or might possess, but because you simply want to do them good. Uh, we have a few illustrations of this. Um, turn over, keep your finger in Romans, but turn over to Luke six twenty-seven. And this is uh, uh, referred to as Jesus' Sermon on the Plain often. Um, it is often confused by, uh, with Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in Matthew, but it seems to be to a different audience in a different location, so I tend to say and just to tend to think that, hey, that Jesus just gave this sermon um, at a different time. But there's a lot of similarities because he, he, he had a very important message and he repeated himself. But let's read what he says in Luke six twenty seven. He says, and he's responding to people that say, love your enemies, uh, uh, or hate your enemies, sorry. Uh, verse 27, but I say to you who hear, love your enemy, uh, sorry. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. We actually see Paul is actually adopting some of those things at the end of our passage. We'll see that tomorrow. But jump down all the way down to verse 35. Look at what Jesus says. But love your enemies and do good and lend. Expect nothing in return and your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High. How do you know that you are a son of God, a daughter of God? You love like he loves. People look at you and they say, that person looks familiar. They look like their father. They act like their father, their heavenly father in heaven. But notice also you will be sons of the Most High for explaining he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Let that sink into your soul and into your heart and to your mind. Notice, it's not saying God loves just the elect. God even shows love and kindness to a certain extent to enemies, to evil people, to people who do not return it in exchange. We, we refer to this as common grace, right? Did you know God showered on you common grace this morning when you woke up and you're an unbeliever, and you're still breathing, that is common grace. God gave you grace. He gives sun to you. He gives shade to you. He gives life to you. That is common grace if you are an unbeliever. It is common grace to have. God shows love even to those who are ungrateful and evil, who give nothing in return. And towards his own children, we see he even shows greater love. Turn over to Ephesians 4. Ephesians 4.32, I love this verse. It says this, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. God was kind, tender-hearted. He totally forgave all of your sins. Therefore, you must, as it says in Ephesians, do the same to those who are around you. Turn back to Romans, but go to Romans 5, verse 8. It says, it says, well, let's start in Romans 
5, 6. Well, we were still weak, talking about Christians. Well, we were weak at the right time. Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But here it is, verse 8. God shows his love for us in that while we were still enemies, Christ died for us. That is the love of God. It is what? It is deliberate attitudes. It's deliberate actions. It is loving people often that are not very loving either at that moment or ever. God shows love and kindness and grace to unbelievers. That is the kind of love of God. It is deliberate sometimes outside of feelings and emotions and inclinations. That is the love of the Christian too, because God has loved them in that way. So it is, it has deliberate, it love with deliberate attitudes. Next off, number two, you love, this, this is the, the inner qualities, the inner reality, the real deal of the Christian, you love with demonstrable action. I've already started talking about this, because it's hard to talk about love the way God loves without talking about actions, right? It is hard. It is hard to even describe love without talking about actions the way God loves. And let that just be just be a mark for you. Loving isn't a feeling. Love that isn't true biblical kind of love. That is a Hollywood kind of love that's manufactured, made up, and it doesn't work. How many Hollywood stars are on their fifth marriage currently working on their sixth? right? Their love, they parade it around like it is great, but it doesn't work. It doesn't last. This is the kind of love that does. It has demonstrable actions. Turning back over to Romans, Romans chapter 12, let's look. Romans chapter 12, verse 9, let love be genuine. That word genuine, anybody have a different word for that? Sincere. Anything else? Don't just pretend to love others. Okay, there we go. Getting a little bit of a flavor here. Anything else? No? Yes? Without hypocrisy. Without hypocrisy. What version is that? NASB. All right, that's what I thought. Uh, yes, without hypocrisy. Uh, you could say it literally, without wearing a mask. So that word hypocrisy referred to play actors that would put a mask on their face and say something with a smile on their face, but in their heart, they were against you. And, and this is the kind of love that, that we are to show as Christians. It's demonstrable love. It's sincere love. It is true from the heart, and it acts in a way that is genuine from the heart. It is not simply sentimental kind of love. It's not just a feeling. Uh, Christians aren't just called to be nice. It's easy to put on a mask for a few hours while you're at church, but how do you love those people that surround you in your life all the time? Your little brother, your little sister. How does your love, how does your love look like with them? Do you have a mask on at church? Uh, Christian love isn't just saying nice and flattering things about other people. You love uh, from a determination within, and this determination within always will reveal itself without. You will always show your love. Love that does not show itself is not real, true, genuine love. Turn over to 1 John 3. This is where you were a little bit this morning. 
First John three sixteen. Well, actually, just missed it. Uh, sorry about that. Uh, you'll be here tomorrow. Sorry about this, Joel. Uh, by this we know love that he laid down his life for us. Look at that. Love lays down its life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if someone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Love has to act. Love is demonstrable. I was reading this book in preparation for this retreat. It's uh, by Jonathan Edwards, an old Puritan. I consider a friend. He doesn't know me because he's dead, but he's my friend. Uh, And he said this one very unique thing. He said, if your heart is full of love, it will find vent. If your heart is full of love, it will vent itself. Now, we always think about vent in a bad way. Like, I just got to vent sometimes. And that's never a good thing. But think about it in a spiritual sense. If your heart is full of love, it will seek, it will find, it will plan, it will try to find ways to love because it wants to love. You are a new creation, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5. Love, true love, gives vent. True love is ashamed of how it doesn't give vent. True love repents of ways it does not show love. Love gives vent. Now, how do you develop this kind of genuine, sincere kind of love that acts? How can we strengthen in ourselves this kind of genuine love? That's what we're about, right? Maybe some of you here are Christians and really weak in this, and you want to grow in your love. I I, I readily admit that I am a different person here at youth group than I am at home, and I hate it. It devastates me. I want to grow in love that's sincere, that's genuine, that's not a mask. I want to love everybody. Well, let's let's look at a few of the ways he kind of qualifies it. And turning back over to Romans chapter 12, uh, second half of verse 9, we see, hold, oh, sorry, abhor what is evil. That is That is one way you... You could look at and define love. We see a, a third kind of description of love here. Love with distancing abhorrence. I'm just trying to add D's, by the way, if you didn't figure that out. Sometimes preachers like to do this to, to, so we can keep track. Distancing abhorrence. Abhorrence. A-B-H-O-R-R-E-N-C-E. I promise myself never to spell out loud in the pulpit, and whenever I do it, I do it wrong, but there you go. Um, It's abhor what is evil. Evil refers to something uh, that is morally wrong, that is everything that is not God. It's the uh, antithesis to anything like God or from God. It is evil uh, and God-rejecting. It twists creation. It calls right wrong and wrong right. That is evil. It destroys God's work. It's based in lies. It works on justice. That is evil. Matter of fact, you did see this this morning in your devotions. Turn over in your book really quick. What is, who was evil in your devotions this morning? Somebody, oh, there you go. Sometimes it pays to be polite. Sometimes, sometimes people steal your answers. Sorry about that, Matthew Castaneras. Cain was evil. Why was he evil? Yes. Because his brother was righteous, right? Sometimes your evilness, right, shows up because you hang around with people that are righteous, that do the right thing, and it exposes you, and it causes anger and hostility and envy and jealousy to bubble up in your heart and in your soul, and you didn't realize how sinful you were until 
You started hanging around with this individual. So what do you do? Well, what did Cain do? What did, what do we see here? What do the children of the devil do according to your homework? According to your homework. Read your answers to your homework. Uh, yes. They practice sin, or they remain in death, it says in 1 John 3.14. Or you could say it this way, they can't stop sinning, right? They can't stop sinning. What else do the children of death do? Yes, Ethan, can't help. What? Sorry, I was trying to say your name really fast and you started talking, so I just tried to jump out of it, but yes. They hate their brothers and sisters. They hate, uh, yes, they hate. Where is that from? 315, yep, to hate, to murder, that, that pulls in Jesus' comments. What else? What else do the children of the devil do? They don't understand God's word. Yes, right? John eight forty seven. they don't hear. They're not of God. They refuse to hear God's rebuke. If you go back into Genesis 4 and look at Cain, you see that God comes to Cain and he says, What are you doing, Cain? Uh, sin is seeking, it's crouching, it's trying to jump on you and attack you, but you must overcome it. And he refuses to listen to God's warning because of his anger towards his brother. Yes, they don't hear. They hate their brother. They love sinning. There's one more. What else do they do? Yes. Well, Matthew. They seek Jesus and hate Yes. They, they seek to kill Jesus. They seek to kill the one that comes from God. Um, they try to get rid of uh, God's people, right? So there you go. That, that is an illustration of evil. And, and, notice, and notice what Joel even said. What was the leading quality in, in uh, Cain's heart? Why did he do this? What was it? Yep, but what was the word he used? Yes? Joel wrote it in the book, so I know you all read it. Uh, what, what, what was it? What was the word? Yes? Uh, I agree with you, but no. Yes. What? Oh, um, because he was of the devil. Because he was of the devil. Do I need to read it? Okay. Uh, <laughs> keep going, keep going. Uh, page 23. Page 23. Cain was blank of Abel. Yes. Fair. What? Okay. <laughs> Did I? <laughs> what? That's true. That's true. Yes. What? 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 He was jealous, right? Sometimes evilness is just... In, you'll see it show up when you're jealous, when you're envious of the people around you, when you have this uneasiness towards their prosperity and the good things that are happening in their lives. When the good things that are happening in their lives just show, man, I'm kind of a, a boring, plain, ordinary person. You get jealous and envious. That's, that's, that's an evil heart. That's a heart of envy. But anyway, that was just to remind you to do your homework. Um, Abhor, he tells us in, in Romans 12, 9. Abhor what is evil. And, and abhor there is a strong, vehement emotion against something. It is a horror about something. Or put it this way, it is to have nightmares about this thing. This troubles me. Sin troubles me. I abhor what is evil. Do you abhor what is evil? You'll never be able to love without actually hating something. Do you realize that? You have to hate certain things to love what is right. You have to abhor and hate sin. Is that in your life? Do you hate sin? 
Uh, how, do we, how do we rightly abhor evil? Well, first off, we should cultivate a heart that is more shocked by sin. And I'm not talking about being naive about sin, but in, in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 6, 18, and then in, in chapter 10, 14, Paul is talking to the Corinthians that live in a sinful city, and he is saying, flee evil. Hey, Corinthians, you need to cultivate in yourself an abhorrence a desire to flee evil. You are in a city of evil. Don't let it become normal to you. Is sin normal to you? Cultivate a desire. Cultivate a heart that is uncomfortable with sin in your life. I'm not saying be naive about the world. I'm simply saying, is sin normal in your heart? Does it just go by without any problems in your life? That is the kind of heart that will not be able to love. Uh, another thing you could do to rightly abhor evil, you could meditate. You could meditate on the cost of your evil on the cross, right? All of your sin, all of your sin, yesterday, today, and forever was paid for by Christ on the cross. You will not abhor sin rightly until you realize the price tag for your sin. It was Christ. It wasn't just that, oh, I have a lousy day now. Oh, my, my parents have grounded me now. Oh, I don't have a phone anymore now. That is not the evil of sin. Those are the consequences of sin. The evil of sin is it cost Christ himself dying on the cross for your sin. Meditate on that. Make that your daily thought. Also, um, choose your friends wisely. It talks about in Psalm 1.1. It talks about, hey, the friends you choose will be the affections you will have. So he says, don't, don't walk in the way of the wicked, those people who bend their ways towards sin. Uh, don't, don't, don't hang around with scoffers. Don't sit with sinners. Don't do any of these things. They will influence your love. And then I talk about this all the time. Yeah, you actually do need to be careful about the friends you let into your heart and into your life because they will decrease your discomfort with sin, your abhorrence of evil. And also another, another way you can grow in abhorrence of evil is you've got to hold fast to what is good. Philippians 4, 8 through 9. But this is our next point, so let's just jump into it right now. Number four, love with delightful adherence. So abhorrence, adherence, try your very best to distinguish those two. Verse 9, once again, love with delightful adherence, abhor what is evil, Hold fast to what is good. Hold fast to tie to oneself. Hold it fast to join two things together like glue. Literally, sometimes it was used to talk about gluing things together. Or you could think about it this way. Hold good things so close to your life that there is no room in between those things for evil to creep in. Delightful adherence. Hold fast to what is good. How do we do this? Well, Romans 12, 2 talks about this. Don't be conformed to the world. Don't, don't just assume what the world calls is good is what you call good. Don't be conformed to the world. Don't let the world press you into their mold, as the message would say. Uh, 1 Thessalonians 5, we should turn over there. 1 Thessalonians 5, 22. 21, 1 Thessalonians 5.21 But test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every 
form of evil. In order to hold fast to what is good, you, you, you have to test it, to examine it. How do you test it? How do you examine it? How do you know what is good if you, if you can't just assume what the world calls as good, good? And if you're also called to examine everything so you know what is good, how do you know what good is? Turn over to Philippians 4, verse 8. Philippians 4, verse 8. Paul says this, Finally, brothers, 4, verse 8, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's anything excellent, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. Notice, heard from me. He's talking about Scripture there, right? Verse 8, whatever is True, whatever is true. What, what is Scripture called true? That's how you know what is good, what is true, what is excellent. You go to Scripture. You examine everything through Scripture. Matter of fact, that first one, truth, qualifies all the rest of these things, right? Because you can't have something that is pure in the world's eyes, but impure in Scripture's eyes, right? This qualifies everything. Just, honorable. You could say something worthy of admiring, worthy of being followed. Is this thing worthy of being followed? Does Scripture say, follow this, seek after this, delight in this, whatever is pure? And by the way, this helps you. The word pure helps you understand what lovely and worthy of praise means. It is, it is something, some things are praised but aren't worthy of praise because they aren't pure. Are, are the things that you praise pure? Are the things that you praise Worthy of praise in Scripture's mind? Lovely, commendable, excellent, worthy of praise, all of these things. Uh, basically, the question is here, hey, this is the real deal Christian right here. They, they are someone who del- has deliberate attitudes of love. They have demonstrable actions of love. They have distancing abhorrence. True love hates something vehemently. It hates sin. It doesn't want to sin anymore like 1 John tells us. Uh, And and also, love, genuine, real-deal love, has delighting adherence. You hold fast to what is good. That is what a Christian does. That's how you develop in love. uh, Just once again, once again, let me just say this once again, you can't do this in your own strength. Right? How do we know? How do we know we can do these things? The basic difference between the real deal Christian and everyone who comes and tries to do these things outside by themselves is 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 very evident. Uh, it's it's the love of God that foreknows, that chooses, that elects, that calls, that saves, that pays the price for you, that enables you, that pours the Holy Spirit into your life, that empowers you. You cannot do these things alone. And until you humble your heart and receive that basic fact, you will not be able to love. You will not be able to abhor sin. You will not be able to delight in what is true. You, you have to come to God in humility. I've got nothing to offer spiritually. That is, that, is, that is the only way you can even begin. That is the beginning page of Christianity and Christian love. Will you, will you think about that? Will you humble your heart and realize that? Even if you're a Christian today, are you walking in arrogance or pride because you've got nothing to offer? Really, you've got nothing to offer to God.